Hello, it's David Shirley from Irish Funds. New requirements regarding the integration of sustainability risk management will impact all fund management companies from the 1st of August this year. This podcast episode is taken from a webinar we hosted on the 28th of June and consists of an expert panel who consider the implementation of the USITS and AFIM delegated acts on sustainability risks and factors that should be taken into account by fund management companies. The moderator is Patrick Rooney from Irish Funds, and you'll hear from Carol Widger from Deckert, Ross Allen from Jupiter Asset Management, and Hansel Fadrillian from Bailey Gifford. I hope you enjoy this episode and check back soon for more great content. Good morning, everyone. My name is Patrick Rooney, and you're all very welcome to this Irish Funds webinar on EU sustainable finance duties for fund management companies. As many of you will be aware, we are holding this webinar in the run-up to the August 1st deadline for the application of the USITS and AIFMD Delegated Acts on Sustainable Finance. I think there is nothing quite like a compliance deadline to focus the mind. And uh, we have quite a good turnout today. We have over 750 of you registered for the webinar, which is great to see. And you're all very welcome today. So uh, on this webinar, you might be aware, we're also going to launch our new compliance publication entitled Integrating EU Sustainable Finance Duties for Fund Management Companies. So you can see a picture of it there on your screen. And this publication is currently available in our member portal. Um, If you follow the link on this slide, so you'll see that uh, the slides are PDF'd and are available to download in your webinar window now. And if you click on the link to those slides, it will bring you to the member portal where you can download the document. This being a member-only document, it is only available in our member portal. And you'll also find the link to the document on the homepage of our website, which will bring you to the member portal as well. Now, this publication is intended to provide practical insights to fund management companies as you implement the delegated acts and embed sustainable finance duties in your organization. And during the webinar, we will talk through various aspects that are dealt with in this publication. And to do that, I'm joined today by an expert panel. So we have, first of all, Carol Widger, who is a partner at Deckert and a member of our Irish Funds ESG Policy, Legal and Regulatory Working Group. And Carol has been the lead contributor to the publication from a legal and compliance perspective. So you're very welcome, Carol. I'm also joined today by Ross Allen, who is the Head of Investment Risk for Ireland at Jupiter Asset Management and a member of our Investment Risk Working Group. And indeed, Ross has also been a key contributor to the publication from an investment risk perspective. You're very welcome, Ross. And finally, last but not least, we're joined by Hansel Fadrilan, who is a compliance officer at Bailey Gifford and a member of our ESG policy, legal and regulatory working group. And I think Hansel is now well known throughout the Irish funds industry for his encyclopedic knowledge of all things related to EU sustainable finance regulation. So we have a great panel for you today and looking forward to the discussion. So just before we get started, let's have a look at what we intend to cover today. And that's on the slide there in front of you. So we will start with an overview of the delegated acts and the compliance requirements given by Carol. Then Hansel will look briefly at the relevant and important linkages to other CEU sustainable finance regulation. Ross is going to talk us through in some detail on embedding sustainability risk management for MANCOs. And then we will look specifically at the approach to data and also at the new requirements around the investment due diligence process in the delegated acts. And finally, Carol will cover supervisory expectations and round off with the compliance checklist. Please note that the webinar is being recorded live and will be made available afterwards. And you can ask a question at any stage by using the chat box, which is available in your screen, and we will seek to get to it over the course of the webinar. So let's now get started. So over to you first, Carol. So can you please give us an overview of the delegated acts? What did they say and what are the key impacts? Um, Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Patrick. And um, good morning to everybody. Um, So the delegated acts are part of a package of measures which forms the European Commission's action plan on sustainable finance, which of course everybody on this call I'm sure is more more than acutely aware of. 
Um, and up until this point, we've been very focused on products and product disclosure, um, SFGR and taxonomy regulation, and um, being a, a, a topic of conversation on pretty much a daily basis, I'm sure it costs lots of measures. And um, so the delegated acts that we will be covering during this, the webinar as mentioned by Patrick is the changes that are proposed to UCITS, AFMD and MIFID, although we will be focusing primarily on the UCITS and AFMD changes, which effectively mirror each other. Um, and as Patrick mentioned, um, take, um, and they apply from the 1st of August, which is fast coming upon us. Um, it's important to note that the delegated acts provide for a high level principle-based approach, um, which means that there's no one size fits all. Um, and it was acknowledged in, in ESMA's technical advice to the European Commission that the principle of proportionality is already clearly ingrained in the uses and AFMD legislation and that it did not need to be reaffirmed in any way um, through the delegated acts. Um, and this has been further supported by ESMA's more recent supervisory briefing, which we will discuss later um, in more detail, which encourages um, national conflict authorities to be proportionate in their supervision um, and goes on to say that many smaller managers may struggle to comply with the new rules. Um, so let's have a look and see what they provide for us. So first up is the organizational requirements. So management companies must take into account sustainability risks and um, when complying with their existing obligations in relation to investment decision-making procedures and organizational structure. And they must ensure that senior management is responsible for the integration of sustainability risks and the performance of their existing activities. In terms of resourcing, management companies must consider and, and retain the required resources and expertise for the effective integration of sustainability risks and ensure that they have technical capacity and knowledge necessary to analyze those risks. We'll talk a little bit more about the resourcing requirements later on. And in terms of conflicts of interest, and um, management companies must now add conflicts that may arise as a result of the integration of sustainability risks in their processes, systems and controls. And the recitals to the delegated acts specifically calls out conflicts arising from remuneration um, or personal transactions of relevant staff or, or conflicts that could arise as a result of greenwashing, selling um, or, or misrepresentation of investment strategies. And sustainability risk management, I guess, sort of speaks for itself, but the delegated acts requires management companies to cover sustainability risks in their existing risk management policies. And we'll talk a lot more detail um, in terms of how you can look, go about looking to achieve this. Um, and then lastly, investment due diligence. Um, management companies will be required to take into account sustainability risk and where applicable, um, principal adverse impact um, on investment of, of investment decisions on sustainability factors and with, when complying with management companies already existing obligations um, regarding investment due diligence. So, Carol, getting the governance right is really key in relation to this and having clear lines of reporting and communication and clear roles and responsibilities. So, how would you advise management companies to approach this? Yeah, I think it's important, um, I guess, that you know every management company is different um, and um, the way in which a management company is going to implement the delegated acts will very much depend on nature, scale and complexity of their activities. And, um, you know, paper, I think, is going to be really helpful with helping managers navigate that, but you know, there, there really is no one size fits all. Um, the expectation is that the integration of the sustainability risks is the responsibility of the senior management um, of the management company. Um, and as a reminder, senior management is defined under in both UCITS and AFMD as persons who effectively conduct the business of the management company. Um, the senior management reports to the governing or supervisory body of the management company, um, which has the ultimate decision-making authority, uh, which in most cases would be the board. Um, so the board should have a good understanding of the regulatory framework um, and the management company's approach to um, sustainability risk integration. Um, and in order for the board and senior management to remain properly informed um, in the contents of the reports um, should, be, should be reviewed and make sure that all the relevant information has been captured. Um, business plan or the program activity, depending on what you have, um, will need to be updated to, to ensure the integration of sustainability risks um, is adequately captured. 
um, the extent in which this is captured within the business plan or within ancillary policy that might sit alongside the business plan um, is really going to be particular to each management company. Um, each managerial function um, should, of course, be assessed to ensure sustainability factors are embedded um, into the organisational structure. Reports from the relevant, relevant designated persons to the board and from delegates to the designated persons will need to be reviewed to make sure that all relevant and required information um, is incorporated and captured. Um, there is no one-size-fits-all, as mentioned. Um, some management companies may want to consider putting in, um, putting in place an overarching sustainable finance framework document, um, which could identify the policies and procedures across the management company's entire organizational structure. And um, this may not be what every management company opts for. Um, it could instead just be sort of, I suppose, implemented across all your policies and procedures, but it really will just depend um, on, the, on the preference for the management company. And um, I suppose that the, the last point to note, just in relation to the role of the depository, um, which would also need to be considered. And interestingly, the, the recent ESMA supervisory briefing, which we will talk about a little bit later, um, clarifies that national competent authorities should ensure that the depository is receiving all the relevant information and that the depository should include all ESG-related investment restrictions in the monitoring of compliance of instructions coming from the management company or the investment manager. So management companies should ensure that they're providing all the necessary information to the depository um, to enable it to carry out its role. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, very interesting developments on the depository front indeed, um, and we'll, we'll discuss that maybe a little bit later. Um, just turning to the resourcing, um, it's really important that the management company has adequate resourcing and access to the expertise uh, on sustainable finance that it needs. So what are you seeing management companies doing on that front? Yeah, I think I think the resourcing is definitely going to be um, and is continuing to be and will continue to be a tricky issue. Um, uses in AFMD already in and the, the existing requirements under use in AFMD require management companies to employ persons with all the appropriate skill, knowledge and expertise to do the job um, and also to ensure the necessary skill to supervise any delegated activities. So the delegated acts now specifically require managers to ensure that for these purposes, they retain the necessary um, resources and expertise for the effective integration of sustainability risks. Um, there is no requirement um, to designate a specific person within the management company with responsibility for sustainability matters. Um, this was considered by ESMA um, as outlined in its technical advice. Um, but it was determined that such a requirement would be disproportionate and that was sufficient um, that there was a requirement for senior management to be responsible for sustainability risks and for authorizations to be required to have the skill, knowledge and expertise to manage sustainability risks without the need to necessarily designate a single person as responsible. Um, and also the central bank's dear CEO letter, which we'll come to a little bit later, um, also acknowledges that the required level of resourcing and expertise may, be, need, may need to be strengthened over time um, on a basis that is proportionate to the nature, scale and complexity of the regulated firm. And the letter does also encourage the engagement of specialist expertise. And we know that the central bank expects that the um, organizational effectiveness director to monitor the adequacy of management companies' internal resources. And so the OED should really lead the assessment of the resources of the management company, taking into consideration, again, the nature, scale and complexity of the management company's activities. Um, the expertise at the level of the board should be assessed. And I think it's fair to say that every director is not expected to be a sustainability expert, um, but they should be able to understand, challenge and question senior management on sustainability related topics. Um, and they may, the board may need to reach out and, and avail of external expertise um, in order to be able to engage in this discourse. Um, then looking at the staff within the management company, um, they should receive appropriate training um, as there is an expectation that a culture of sustainability permeates the entire organization um, and that all personnel within the management company should carry out their roles in line with the management company's approach to sustainability risk integration. Um, 
there is definitely a need, I think, to develop training courses for all levels, of course, industry firms and, and possibly adapt existing courses to include sustainability modules. Um, and firms will need to ensure that their teams are freed up to devote the time to, to engage in this training, um, which ideally, I think, uh, should be refreshed on an ongoing basis. Um, I think that there, there's going to be a, a scaling up of resourcing um, and continued education of the workforce on an ongoing basis. This isn't something that's all going to happen as of the 1st of August, um, but I think um, firms are really just going to need to assess what, the, the, what their resourcing needs are, what their training needs are, and looking at the, their boards and, and just trying to make sure um, that everybody understands how the sustainability risks are integrated across the entire organization. Thanks, Carol. And just on the, the training points, Irish Funds did recently conduct a skills analysis and report uh, issued a report with training recommendations uh, regarding the funds industry. So that includes quite a broad number of recommendations on general uh, versus specialist training for, for different roles. And we're engaging with Sustainable Finance Skillnet to seek to bring that forward and develop those courses and, and, and roll them out. And there will be more to follow on that in, in the months ahead. But uh, that training report is also available in our member portal for you to download, which management companies may find of interest. So moving on swiftly then, uh, we want to discuss now the linkages to the other aspects of EU sustainable finance regulation because uh, the delegated DACs are part of a, a broader puzzle and there are these important linkages to SFDR in terms of disclosures and also MIFID, particularly on the distribution side. So Hansel, can you take us through the linkages and how you are ensuring consistency across all your policies, procedures and documentation, please? Sure, Patrick, and good morning, everyone. So to answer that question, let me take you back to May 2018. So more than four years ago, the European Commission released the first legislative package under the Sustainable Finance Action Plan. So one of the proposals included in the package was aimed at improving disclosure requirements on how institutional investors integrate environmental, social, and governance ESG factors in their risk processes. We now know this proposal as the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, or SFDR. From the, from the onset, it has been made clear that SFDR is meant to supplement the rules already laid down in supplementary in, in various sectoral frameworks like UCITS, AIFMD, and MIFID. As such, SFDR and the amendments to the Delegated Act should have, or should have always been viewed as complementary proposals, with the latter serving as the building block of what firms need to disclose as part of their obligation under the former. Carol has provided a very good overview of the various elements covered by the amendments to the Delegated Act. The slide maps these elements against the disclosure requirements under SFDR. Whilst the linkage isn't very clear in the articles associated with the entity level requirements, the relevant recitals provided in the slide um, and capture the interaction between SFDR and the Delegated Acts. Um, whilst recitals are not legally binding, they are useful in interpreting and providing context on certain regulation provisions. So, for example, when we talk about Article 3, this is providing transparency in terms of how firms are integrating sustainability risk in their investment decision-making process. The associated recital provides that, the, that this transparency should also cover organizational risk management and governance aspects of these processes. As such, there is a realistic expectation that once you've implemented the various elements captured in the delegated acts, that these should flow into your SFDR entity level disclosures. Next slide, please. I appreciate that this webinar is focused on fund management companies, but it is also worth mentioning the amendments to MIFID, particularly in relation to those fund management companies that have MIFID top-up permissions. You'll notice that the amendments to MIFID cover the same elements as the amendments to UCITS in AIFMD, with the main difference being the introduction of the concept of sustainability preferences, which is defined um, in the slide. Sustainability preferences will be relevant in relation to suitability assessments, wherein firms are expected to ask clients or potential clients of their preference in relation to 
sustainable investments, including taxonomy alignment, and also whether a product considers principal adverse impact or not. Irish Funds has previously hosted a webinar that covered this topic, so I recommend revisiting the recording of that session if you need more details. Perfect. Thanks, Hansel. So we might move on now to sustainability risk management. Embedding sustainability risk management is really at the core of these Delegated Acts requirements. And our paper, the Irish Fund Sustainable Finance Duty paper that uh, we mentioned earlier, outlines a potential framework that management companies can adopt here. And Ross, while this is a wide-ranging subject and um, there are different ways to approach this. There are two key areas, I think. So there's the, the approach at the management company corporate level, and then there's the approach at the fund level, the product level. So maybe if we start at the Manco level, what practical steps should members be taking at this point in time? Uh, thanks, Patrick. Yeah, good morning to everybody. Um, practical steps is number one, don't panic. Right, we're, we're all in this together. And I think a lot of firms giving the onslaught of SFDR will have a lot of this work already done. Now, the, the problem is how it's actually being stitched together. And Carol mentioned maybe framework documents and things of that nature. We can talk about that maybe later on. Um, practically at the corporate side, um, step one is strategy, right? So has the board discussed strategy? and while that sounds very simple, it may not be so because if the Manco is part of a wider group, the group may be setting the strategy and then it's how to actually understand how the local board can actually implement the same as well. But but there's some practical things. So number one, on let's look at ESG, right? So on the E side for a Manco, um, typically Mancos don't have a high carbon footprint, but what about travel of staff? Like you, you can actually do analysis on that as well, and you can actually set policies around that. On the S side, the social side, are you promoting um, employee benefits? Um, have you reviewed the employee policies? Again, this idea of social inclusion and, and does the company do charity work? Again, these are questions that the board can be asking. And then on the G side, the, this one's really easy, is are you a signatory of the Irish Fund's corporate governance code? And if you are, then that actually lends itself towards being able to prove that that governance is part and parcel of what the man code does. And I'd be, it's probably the, uh, the odd firm that's an outlier of not adopting the code. Um, in terms of the practical parts of it now is like, so once that, that kind of discussion has, has taken place, what are the documents that the board and, and the management company should be updating? Risk appetite statements, that's number one. So each firm should have a risk appetite statement or equivalent type document. Um, when we think about appetites and specific risks, one of the debates that we've had both in Irish funds, uh, working committees and in, in other kind of forums as well is like, well, what is sustainability or ESG risk? Is it a is it a standalone risk or is it actually, fancy word, transversal risk, which is simply a risk that actually applies to multiple risk categories. So um, there's different uh, views and approaches. Uh, the approach we've adopted in-house is it's transversal. It's a it's ESG and sustainability as part of product strategy. It's part of all of our key risk categories, and that's how we actually view it. But but that can vary firm by firm. Um, the enterprise framework that that again is definition of your risks, and the other the next three documents: top-down risk assessment, RCSA's risk registers. Again, these are part of the overall framework. I think that's important to review and refresh ahead of one August. Um, the last piece, delegate oversight, this is obviously CP138, 140. I think a lot of people have been focused on this space. Um, the question to ask now is when we think about integrating sustainability into the selection of delegates and their oversight, well, one is do we include questions on sustainability in the DDQs, the annuals or the initials? Is there a particular goal of the Manco, be it abolition of modern slavery, whatever that point may be? And is that then actually flowing then to the to the delegates and service providers, which include administrators, um, the office building that the Manco is in, and a variety of others as well. So there's a lot of things that you can do, and and even those of you out there today, like even things small steps, is it on the board agenda? Is it in your your committee meeting agendas? Do you have ESG on those agendas? And we we certainly in our firm again have have taken this approach as it should be on pretty much every agenda. If it's a counterparty risk committee or if it's the board, 
it should be all the same. So we're, we're really trying to make sure that we integrate this straight to business. That's a great starting point, Ross. Uh, so if we turn now to the product level, um, due to SFDR, there's been a lot of focus on product classification, Article 6, Article 8, Article 9, a lot of discussion around that. Um, but uh, before we look specifically maybe at the risk management at the fund product level, do you have any thoughts on the various approaches that funds are adopting? Yeah, uh, well, I'll always have a thought and a view on something, Patrick, for those who know me. Um, very, very much so. So, look, th this stuff is, it's its flavours of ice cream in reality, right? So, it, it, it is so broad and it's, <laughs> it is so encompassing that... I think that's part of the challenge that we in, in, in this industry have faced is that SFDR started not with the intention of these classifications, but certainly where it's ended up in with Article 6, 8s and 9s. Um, this, this kind of graphic, um, now there's a lot more detail in the Irish Fund's paper that, that's, that's just been released today, but essentially it goes from lighter green to darker green. So applying exclusions, limiting ESG risk, and then all the way down to, to assessing impact. Um, I think what's incumbent on Mancos is understanding these types of products. So where you have a fund that you manage, be it six, eight or nine, what is it specifically trying to do? And critically, what is actually in the prospectus? What are we telling our investors? So if it's applying exclusions, what are the specific exclusions that it's actually listing? That might be Arctic drilling, it might be thermal coal, it might be cluster munitions, whatever it may be. Well, understanding if that's what we're actually focusing on here and that's what we're telling we're investors we're going to do, how do we integrate that into the processes, the oversight and the screens, be that pre-post checks, whatever it might be. And that goes to the other end as well from uh, assessing impact. Well, what, are, what exactly is the fund trying to achieve? Is it reduction of water waste or improvement in energy? Um, yeah, it's it's trying to understand that there's a it's a very broad church, uh, and critically for Mancos, it's it's having strong processes around the product classification that leads to probably a safer and better outcome. Okay, th thanks Ross for that insight. So now moving on to risk management at the fund product level, um, the Irish Funds paper has outlined uh, some helpful guidance on this on potential approaches. So could could you walk us through some of those fund level considerations, please? Uh, hopefully people are still are still alive and with us at this point. Yeah, it, it can be a little bit heavy going on the risk side. I am conscious of that. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, my bias is uh, um, investment risk. So I'm quite closely aligned to the products themselves. Um, again, I think the paper that Irish Fund has developed is, is really good in setting a framework. And the last thing we, I think we want to, and I think Carol mentioned this in Hansel as well, it's like it really is down to nature, scale and complexity. So as we go through this, I think it's incumbent on the firms to, to really tailor the approach. We can give the principles and the framework, but but it's down to the firm itself to actually um, to make these assessments on what's applicable for, for their fund range. So um, yeah, we outlined here, this is actually quite a, a good way of thinking about things. So um, Strategy, first of all, is, again, let's go back to, to the board and, and the board of directors, what they are, what's the view? Are we trying to move funds from sixes to eight? Is there new products being development de developed? How does that fit into the overall goals of the management company? And once that's actually been set and, and we actually kind of move down to the funds themselves, product design, right? It's the first of these boxes here. Um, early engagement by the Manco. So I, I say that as, again, is it something that in theory is very easy? It may not be, right? Uh, I work in an in-house Manco, so I'm part of a, a wider group. If, the, if you're an independent third party, being involved really early with the co-manufacturer can sometimes have some challenges, right? Um, but I think it's really important to get in early, understand what the product is, what, how it's being designed. And, and actually that links into the investment due diligence part because if we understand what the product is trying to do, it's directly linked to the investment strategy. So we, we had mentioned the product or the, the fund types earlier. If it's an exclusion list or let's say the promotion of an ESG characteristic or whatever it might be, that's a function of the investment strategy, which then goes into the product. So I think having a strong product approval process at your management company, uh, the ability to demonstrate the engagement and to record that engagement, these are the things that 
most mancos, if not all, are already doing, we now need to just add some extra pieces on it to cover the sustainability aspects of these funds. Um, oversight framework, we're going to talk about that in a second as well as how that might work and what a manco can actually do. And then when we talk about funds, the next three really is, is, is crucial, right? It's what identification of the key sustainability risks. How do we measure them? That's not easy. We'll talk about that in a second. And then the reporting back into the board and its committees as well. So um, I'll actually move on. If we can move on to the next slide, let's, let's kind of think about the oversight framework itself. Okay, thanks. Um, so I tried to think about this in kind of timelines and cycles. So what does the man code do and when does it do it? Again, they, like I, we, we have things like ad hoc monthly and quarterly here. Again, that, that, that may not be appropriate for, for all firms. So if you're a, an A firm managing closed end funds, your reporting cycles might be slightly different. Your board will be quarterly, but the other pieces may vary. So again, just flagging that from a, just a consistency point. Um, ad hoc, when we think about sustainability, was there a breach of an investment restriction? If so, what are the control processes to identify said breach? And how does the Manco get involved? So again, it's understanding that and developing a framework with your delegated investment managers, establishing that and where there is a notification, it's fast acting by the Manco, passive active breaches, et cetera. Monthly, again, this time scale may vary. It might be daily, weekly, or, or further dated. Um, a monthly process is what we've we've introduced for for some of our our, our usage funds. Um, th this is really where we look at trends through time and an assessment of ESG risks. And we're going to go into detail of how how do we measure risks themselves. But I think this is a critical part. Some like management companies may have local committees that are monthly. It depends on your firm, but I think that assessment by the appropriate designated person, and that might be one, it might be many because there's different aspects to risk management. In one way, you might be DPIM in conjunction with fund risk and up risk. Again, that'll be down to the mancos to decide. Quarterly, what are we telling the boards? Right, very, very simple. Um, level of information, what, is, what are the key MI or KPIs that they need to see to actually get them comfortable with the products and what they're actually performing in line with expectations? For example, if, you're, if it was an investment objective, outperform a bench, um, over three years rolling, we'd use performance numbers. If we're saying that we, so that's just strictly performance. On sustainability, if a fund is saying we're going to be net zero by 2050, what does the board need to see to demonstrate that trend through time that the fund is actually trying to achieve those goals? And then annually um, is due diligence on the investment manager. Formal DDQs, integration of the questions, reviews of policies and procedures at the underlying um, investment managers. So that's a kind of a good, good kind of snapshot of the over, uh, of the framework itself. So we might just move on to to the next slide, please. Yeah, Ross, and maybe as we do, just one point to highlight is for members. I think that's important is that the central bank has highlighted to us that an annual due diligence review of the investment management delegate just on its own would not suffice. So I think embedding oversight in in those other ways that you describe will be key here as well for Mancos. I think it's a really good point, Patrick. Yeah, I, I, I use the word, or I hope I use the word, formal due diligence on an annual basis, right? So certainly the way that, okay, again, varies on the, uh, on the firm. We're interacting with our delegated investment manager all the time, right? So be that uh, a breach, performance questions, we actually have quarterly reviews where we sit down with each fund manager once, once a quarter, right, per desk. Not every firm does that and they do it in a slightly different way, but that is, again, that's ongoing due diligence. If we identify a trend or an issue, we're working directly with the investment manager. We're not waiting for the end of the year. And I, I suspect that's pretty much the same across most, most businesses. Um, identification of risk. And Patrick, you're, you're going to try and keep me honest on time. So hopefully we're, we're still okay, right? Um, the, yeah, th this concept is something that's been um, introduced in some of the le legislation. So how do we identify the risks for a fund? And there's a concept called double materiality, right? Double materiality is, I'll try and be as simple as we possibly can be. So let's take the bottom one, outside in, right? The impact that the environment is having, is having, excuse me, on, on the investments that we make, on the companies that we make themselves. So if we invested into a hotel and that hotel is on a beautiful sandy beach, 
But if we don't hit our, tar our climate targets and the sea levels all increase, that hotel is going out of business because it's going to be underwater, right? So there's a threat from the environment and the viability of that company and that long-term investment. That's outside in. Inside out, the opposite way. So if a manco or if a fund invests into a company, what's the impact that particular company is going to have on the wider environment? An energy company, for example, is clearly going to be a high greenhouse gas or carbon emitter. That's clearly going to have an implication on the environment. And if we apply this lens, it actually leads us towards the next slide, which is we've identified key risks. Now, how do we measure them themselves? So if we go to the next slide, we, we try and keep this theme going of, of double materiality. There's, there might be a slight delay, delay in moving to the next slide, but um, we can go a cappella. There we, we are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Cheers. Um, yeah, so uh, this is going to be my last slide, so we'll certainly bring the others back in now quite shortly. Um, so I'll touch on this outside in is the first one that we touch on on the left hand side of our screen. So um, impact of the environment on the invested companies that we're in. So we, we use ESG risk scores and I think we're all probably those in this space have talked at length at the quality of the data. But essentially, um, an ESG risk score tries to measure this with a kind of a numeric and somebody like a, an investment risk guy like me, I love numbers problem is many of these are quite qualitative in their assessment so that does lead to challenges it, it gives us a score of how likely the impact an environmental factor or an srg factor will have on the on the future of a company um very relevant for future performance as well it's conversations that we can have with the portfolio managers as as, as, and when as, as appropriate inside out um so this links to the, the principal adverse in, impact indicators it's basically a measure of the companies we're invested in what, what is the impact and that might be carbon, it might be the global compact or maybe, um, on, a, on the governance side, it might be pay or, or diversity of inclusion. What's critical to me, and I want everyone out there to really think about this is more, how do we measure very long-term trends? So point in time information is, is quite relevant but to me, for many of these longer term impact or, or kind of assessments, it's more about a trend through time. And that could be either relative to a bench or an absolute number. And I think when we look at numbers in here, really what we want to see is, is kind of that progression. And when we think about carbon emissions, we, it's, we're dealing with real companies. They don't move in a lovely, nice, like straight line or in an, at an angled line they will introduce things on on kind of timescales that fits their business and that means that the lines and the actual implications can be jumpy really it, it's kind of sticky stuff it'll arrive at a particular point and then we'll see differences in the data so i think using point in time is it can cause some problems for a certain metric so uh, certainly for for those listening today to, to take that one away and um, the last point really to touch on is engagement now if you're a passive house, engagement can be done through voting, but if you're an active house, like, like Jupiter, uh, engagement is a huge part of how we see the role of, of, of a buy-side firm and how we influence companies to actually improve or reduce the, the PAIs or the overall impact to society or to the wider environment. And I'll pause there. Thanks, Ross. Some really great insight there. So I'd like to bring Carol and Hansel back into the conversation now, please. Um, if we could maybe, before we move on to, to this slide on data and due diligence, I'd just like to ask each of you, what is your key challenge in terms of implementing the delegated acts that you see from your perspective? So maybe taking the legal perspective first, Carol. Um, thanks, Patrick. And as, as, as a true lawyer, um, I go straight to the paperwork um, because that's what we like to do, put pen to paper. Um, but I think obviously there's going to be an element of repapering um, and that's going to um, need to be the result of engaging with stakeholders and delegates to understand um, you know, what kind of reporting um, needs to be revisited. Um, and that's definitely going to be time consuming. And I think it's also important to ensure, as, as Ross has been kind of alluding to, the importance of understanding the investment manager and the investment process. And, and, and that um, will need to be reflected in the reporting 
Um, and so um, that's you know that's something that we would see ourselves getting quite involved with clients on. Um, and the other point, and I, I know we talked about resourcing as well, and there's been a few questions coming in on the chat box. Um, I do think resourcing is going to be a challenge. Um, and I suppose it's not necessarily a legal point, but just a more general um, operational challenge. Um, the area of sustainable finance is relatively nascent, um, and, and the regulatory framework, as we can see, is incredibly technical. Um, it's, it's effectively a combination of legal and scientific interpretation. Um, and so um, we are seeing a lot of management companies leverage internal resources um, and group expertise. Uh, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. The question has come in as to whether the expertise needs to sit um, in Ireland. Um, and, and I don't believe that's the case. Um, and I think that, that definitely is because there's probably just a, a lack of expertise in the market. And so you need to go to larger marketplaces where there's greater pools of talent. And I know, Ross, um, in, in Jupiter, you have your um, head of ESG is based in the UK, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right, Carol. Um, like, it's going to vary per firm, clearly. Um, yeah, our head of sustainability is based in the UK. Um, like, and I think when we think about resources, we also have to be quite cognizant of Okay, how we tap into those resources. So our head of sustainability is is invited to to talk to the board, for example, and vice versa, right? So we we have wider teams across our business that we leverage and and utilize. I think with management companies and and the point on maybe feet on the ground and and trying to get that local expertise or specific expertise on ESG, it is a massive challenge. Um, but I think we're there's still a, a kind of a responsibility on on designated persons, particularly on the board, to tool up really and i think the work that patrick and irish funds are doing in terms of availing of uh, of certain training exercises or training resources is critical to actually get the industry where it needs to be this is not going away it, it, we really need to embrace it yeah no totally agree and i think also worth pointing out central bank's expectation um that the board and senior management proactively um promote a culture that places emphasis on climate and broader esg issues um, and that's tricky, you know, because culture is such an evidence concept and it's very hard to know when you've got that right. Um, so I just think that's going to be um, an ongoing challenge that, that we're, we're going to just continue to, it's going to continue to evolve and develop hopefully in the right direction. That's all from me, Patrick. Great. Thanks for those insights, Carolyn, for covering off some of the Q&A there as well. Um, so Hansel, turning to you then briefly, what, what do you see as your main challenge? So um, I've always viewed ESG as an evolution rather than a revolution. So Carol has touched on this point um, earlier. She, she mentioned the constant evolution, and this can pose various compliance challenges, particularly in relation to ensuring that decisions firms are making are in implementing reg regulations um, aligned with the most recent guidance available. So, for example, this just happened recently that we've seen three ESG-related publications in the span of nine days. So it's very important that firms are actually considering these publications and have a proper process in place to track future publications that could have an impact in terms of how they're implementing the requirements. Another key challenge for me is managing the data gaps. Um, given that financial market participants are being required to provide sustainability-related disclosure ahead of investing companies dis disclosing the same information. Given the increasing importance of sustainability-related da data, both in investment decision-making, processing and meeting regulatory obligations, including any reporting requirements, it is vital that firms also manage any perceived greenwashing risk that could arise from using non-standardized and incomplete ESG data. Apologies, I was, I was on, on mute there. Apologies. Uh, thanks for those insights, Hansel. So I think in the interest of time, maybe, and picking up on the data point, if we want to move on to the next slide, um, do you want to present that slide in terms of the, the approach to governance around the data, given all of the data challenges uh, that, that we're well aware of in the market, Hansel? Happy to, Patrick. So in the guidance that you mentioned at the start of the webinar, there is a de dedicated section regarding data strategy. So fund management companies 
already have existing due diligence obligation in relation to outsourcing. So I don't see this any different in terms of select when they're selecting ESG data providers to use. So as part of any due diligence, I'd expect fund management companies to consider um, the methodologies being used by data providers, including the provider's data governance, which will cover the frequency of updates of the data. Data, data hierarchy relates to the prioritization of data. So this means we'd expect firms to prioritize verified data over reported data, and then reported data over estimated data. Um, developing capability is about firms enhancing their ability to interrogate and validate data. This could also include non-reliance on a single data provider to allow comparison in data and ensuring that any data infra infrastructure will continue to meet future needs. The last key element is disclosure, and this is really about transparency in relation to limitations associated with the use of data and the implications of these limitations on the investment process and the financial products. Regulators place importance on these disclosures such that they have included a dedicated section in on the SFDR website disclosure to capture any limitations associated with the use of data. In addition to disclosing the implications associated with data limitations, it will also be useful if firms disclose the steps they are taking to address these limitations and challenges. So this really is about the best effort places and making sure that you're documenting the efforts you are doing to sort of gather the data that's um, that you have and that you'll be able to use in terms of disclosure and your risk management process. Thanks, Tanzil. Yeah, that, that best efforts approach will certainly be very important given the situation. So I might call Ross back in here at this point. Ross, do you have any comments on that, you know, from a data perspective, from a risk management reporting perspective, firstly? And then secondly, if you could also uh, talk a bit about um, integration of sustainability risks into the investment due diligence process, because I'm conscious that's something we, we want to cover off as well as an important requirement. Sure. Yeah. No, thanks, Patrick. Um, I'm conscious, yeah, we're... we're we have a lot to cover and, and we're going to be banging up against time. So I'll try and be quite brief. The yeah, data data is a, a problem, right? Um, so we've got certain things where we're trying to apply a quantitative lens to things that are extremely qualitative. Um, so taking even an example, uh, the UNGC, so the UN Global Compact, that's effectively 10 principles that talk about Maybe labor, um, a very so do not significant. A couple of a couple of items, and because that is an interpretation of how a company is abiding by those rules, you can see something that is a violator or not a violator. Vendors view it differently, so you can have one vendor that says company X is a violator, and another vendor that says it's not. If you have a rule in your prospectus that says I won't buy any violators, what vendor source are you using? It's it's a real challenge. Um, and one that's been covered probably extensively across um, many other uh, many other webinars and, and forums. So again, with time in mind, I'll, I might just jump to the to the investment DD piece. Um, yeah, look, this was front and center in the in the regulations. It's called out very clearly. Um, I think about it in probably two different ways. So one is what's the delegated investment manager doing, and then what is the manco doing, right? And again, with our audience in mind here. To me, it's really the the manco needs to oversee how the delegated investment managers is integrating sustainability into the investment selection process and the investment due diligence process. It's a series of questions, right? We've got to think about this sensibly. Okay, well, step one, what's the product product classification? What is the product telling investors it's going to do? That's step one. Step two is the investment process or strategy itself. Is it active? Is it passive? Is it a fundamental stock picker? Is it a quantitative strategy? It, there's a variety of things that we need to be very mindful of um, as we go through things. Uh, what are the screens that the investment manager is going to apply? So when, if they are stock pickers, what are, are they putting positive screens or negative screens on the investment universe to, to screen out the good ones or the bad ones? Um, all of this, it to me, forms part of the the, the due diligence around the product launch itself. And then it's part of the ongoing uh, uh, the ongoing due diligence. So as you meet those investment managers and the fund managers, this is what you said you were gonna do. 
are you continuing to do it? And actually seeking and having those conversations with fund managers, it's, are you still true to label? And that's part of, to be honest, we do that uh, as part of the wider due diligence and oversight process that we would do anyway. But now we just need to be very mindful that we're including sustainability into it as well. That's great. Thanks, Ross. So at this point, I might bring Carol back uh, to discuss uh, the supervisory expectations. So, Carol, you mentioned the Dear CEO letter. Are there some points that you want to highlight in that respect? Um, yes, yes, I will quickly, Patrick, because also conscious of time. So the central bank um, issued this letter. I've referred to it a couple of times in the course of the um, webinar. Um, it was hot on the heels of the launch of the Glasgow Declaration at COP26 in November last year. Um, it sets out the central bank's supervisory expectations for all regulated um, financial service providers. So it's, it has very broad application. Um, it's very high level. It's not prescriptive. Um, and it's not intended to override the current existing regulatory requirements which apply to firms. Um, and it sets out five key areas. In terms of governance, um, the central bank expects that the board of the regulated firm demonstrate clear ownership of climate risk affecting the firm. Um, and I've already, I think, already mentioned um, the central bank's expectations in terms of resourcing, which it mentions as part of its governance comments. Um, in terms of risk management, um, it specifically calls out the need for regulated firms to understand the, um, the impact of climate change on the risk profile of the for, for a firm and the importance of sufficient management information and risk reporting to enable the board to consider the challenges and challenge decisions of senior management. You see a lot of the same themes you've seen already coming out through um, the delegated acts. Um, it talks about scenario analysis um, and believes that scenario analysis and stress testing are critical to assess the potential future client outcomes, drawing on lessons learned from um, the recent pandemic um, and the ability to access pro appropriate data will be key, um, as we've already just heard from, from Hansel. Um, the central bank also expects firms to assess their strategy um, and business model and consider changes um, as the, such as the development of new products and services um, and the, the scenario analysis and stress testing um, just mentioned will obviously help inform the strategic planning. Um, and then in terms of disclosures, um, the central bank reiterates the dangers of greenwashing and the firm's obligations and making sure um, they have accurate disclosures um, in their documentation. Um, again, something that we're all very familiar with, um, with SFD or um, taxonomy. Um, I might also then just briefly mention the ESMA supervisory briefing as well, um, Patrick, that came out very recently. And the purpose of the supervisory briefing is really to promote common supervisory approaches and practices by ESMA across national conference authorities across the EU. And um, it's non-binding. Um, and the supervisory briefing doesn't just cover the delegated acts. In fact, the delegated acts are quite a small part of it. Um, it covers um, a lot more elements of SFDR. Um, firstly, it encourages um, NCAs to be proportionate in their supervision, which I mentioned earlier. Um, and that NCA should really um, consider elements such as the type of funds and the type of assets the fund invests and the complexity of the investment policy and the strategy of the funds and the types of investors in the fund, um, which I think is really helpful. Um, the ESMA is recommending NCAs develop a checklist to help assess compliance with pre-contractual disclosure requirements. I mean, I think the central bank probably already has that checklist through um, its, you know, its various application forms. Um, and it does mention that Article 9 funds um, should be expected to close, disclose principal adverse impact, even though not mandatory, um, due to the requirements of do not, do not significantly harm disclosures for sustainable investments in SFGR. Um, also, NC, the um, ESMA also recommends um, that NCAs should assess the consistency of the sustainability-related disclosures across fund documentation and marketing material. Um, and it provides some guidance on how information should be presented um, and interestingly recommends disclosure of the article under which the fund discloses under SFDR, despite the fact that SFDR is not supposed to be um, a label. Um, and it goes on to give some guidance on, uh, on the use of particular names as well, which I think managers um, should really pay attention to. Um, it also um, recommends that NCA should verify compliance of website and periodic disclosure requirement with, with SFGR. 
Um, it talks about the role of the depository, um, which I've already mentioned um, in the course of the webinar. Um, interestingly, um, it does suggest that NCAs may wish to carry out um, an analysis of the portfolio um, to ensure compliance with the requirements um, for sustainable investments and to, and, and to potentially involve the depository as part of this exercise. Um, um, and it also had some comments um, on delegated acts um, um, and noted how broad the acts are um, and that they apply to fund managers who may not offer sustainable funds um, themselves. Um, as mentioned earlier, it recognises that some smaller and mid-sized managers, um, especially those that do not provide sustainable funds, um, may struggle to comply with, these, uh, with the new rules. Um, and it suggests that NCAs should verify compliance with the delegated acts by checking the disclosures and ensuring management companies and um, by sorry by checking the description and the manner in which um, sustainability risks are um, are integrated as per the pre-contractual disclosures um, which I thought was an interesting point um, and I think probably bearing out that the delegated acts is not looking to rewrite right people's SFD or categorizations and um, but just ensuring that they are actually doing what they say they do in terms of their SFD or disclosures. Um, it also talks about regulatory intervention and, and sets out some situations whereby the um, ESMA thinks that NCA regulatory intervention would be appropriate, um, but ultimately NCAs remain responsible themselves for whatever regulatory action they wish to take. Um, so I think that kind of sums up um, the recent um, I suppose supervisory expectations, both from um, a domestic and European level. Um, and then finally, just to mention the compliance checklist, we have this fantastic compliance checklist um, in our paper. Um, I think it'll be really helpful for people to go through um, and just to see the various um, areas of attention. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to read on that slide, but um, it's much more accessible in the paper if you download it um, from the website. Indeed, Carol, that's, that's available in the, the paper, as we mentioned. So. Before we move on to the Q&A, just um, in terms of supervisory activity, just a few points I want to mention as well for participants in case you, you haven't picked up on it. So the central bank has announced its intention to conduct a thematic review of sustainable finance in Q3 of this year. We're also awaiting their report on spot checks of uh, more recent filings that, that have been made. Um, and I think in their reviews, they'll clearly be guided by the supervisory briefing that, that Carl has mentioned. In the Dear CEO letter, they also announced their intention to set up a climate forum. And uh, that is actually taking place tomorrow, the, the inaugural session of that. And there are quite a number of stakeholders involved, including Irish funds. So there will be more to follow on that. So in terms of Q&A that have come in, Carol, you've covered off some. Um, here's another one. How much of the board's responsibilities ca uh, can it discharge to a specialised sustainability committee? I don't know if anyone wants to offer a view on that. I'm, I'm happy to, to take a first stab at that one, Patrick, if anyone else wants to. Um, I, mean, I mean, ultimately, the board is responsible. Um, so, you know, you can, you can delegate responsibilities, um, which you, you know, or delegate functions, but not responsibilities. So um, you can certainly engage a sustainability committee. Um, it would be important to have proper terms of reference for that committee and for the board to have proper oversight on the committee, um, you know, to be able to oversee what it's doing. Um, and appropriate reporting. Um, but if that's the way the board feels is the most efficient way to address these issues, then um, you know, the, the, I don't see any issues establishing such a committee, but ultimately the responsibility will rest in the board. So you can't totally discharge your responsibility, you retain the responsibility, um, but obviously you can be assisted with, it, with such a committee. Yeah, I have a question on the remit as well and the breadth of it, right? Uh, if, you, if you do establish that committee, I think, it's defining terms of that is going to be crucial. Is it fund? Is it corporate? What side of the business is it actually dealing with? Um, yeah, there's a number of things that you could do. It would be helpful potentially for some firms, certainly. Um, but yeah, I'm a Carol. Like board, board still has the responsibility collectively. Great. Thank you for that, Ross. Um, a question that arose, I think, from from something you mentioned, Ross. Um, is if sustainability needs to be on all agendas, how do we avoid it becoming a box ticking exercise? Uh, I should have opened up with that uh, the thoughts and views of Mr. Allen does not represent the thoughts and views of Irish funds and Jupiter Asset Management, right? But I didn't. Um, so I, I think it's, 
look, we 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 got to understand the the thrust of this legislation, right? They want firms collectively to take sustainability serious, um, very seriously. <clears throat> so, it there is yeah okay I can say if you end up in a point where you're simply ticking boxes and not adding value, that's a problem, right? Nobody wants to be in that position. But if we don't at least at the start start integrating sustainability into everything that we do as a business then that's where the dangers really fall so i i think it, it can tail off potentially through time but where we stand today I, I think the ask is 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 quite direct by the regulators we really need to take this quite seriously i think okay. sorry probably just worth mentioning the, the supervisory briefing you know the esmo one where it talks about you know situations where ncas might want to take um enforcement or you know in engage from an enforcement perspective it's it, one of them is where sustainability risk has not been integrated throughout the organization despite an appropriate period of time the only way really you can demonstrate that is that you've, you've documented it so you know there does need to be an element of i'm not saying box ticking but there certainly needs to be an element of putting pen to paper and documenting um what you're doing um, and and that's how you would be able to demonstrate that if the central bank were to come um, and you know take that as a briefing to heart and, and enforce that. If it's not documented, it didn't happen. Exactly. Unfortunately, yeah. Good words, Hendon. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm getting warnings uh, about about time having elapsed. So I think we'll, we'll have to leave it there on the Q&A, but uh, thank you all for, for attending and participating for your questions. So. That concludes the webinar today. I, I hope you found it useful as you continue on your compliance journey. The recording, as I mentioned, will be made available and posted online. But before I go, I would like to thank our speakers for your excellent contributions and insights today. And I'd also like to thank our working groups, in particular the ESG Policy, Legal and Regulatory Working Group, the ESG Servicing Data Working Group, the Investment Risk Working Group and the Manco Working Group for your comments on the paper and your contributions to it. And I do hope you find it an interesting and useful read, which I'm sure you will. So thank you for attending the webinar. Please do fill out the feedback form, which will appear on your screens in just a moment. Thanks, thank you very much and goodbye.